0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It is a a joy to be here with you. It's a great joy to look out and see a lot of familiar faces and uh, people I know have caught up with some of you and want to catch up with the rest of you. Um, Yeah. Uh, We got some slides up here. I got to do this. You know, we're going to preach. We'll get to the Word of God. But I'm also supposed to give a little update here. So you're trying to balance and fit all this in. Um, This is my family. Um, I'm Jim. Jim Ayers. Uh, my wife Bethany is there. Uh, our oldest is Caleb. He's in the back. He's going to be 13 in about a week. We are entering those teenage years, so life is changing. Um, on your left, my right, is Titus. He's 11 years old. And then we have Mariah, who is nine years old. Uh, that's our family. We are, go ahead and click to the next one. We're missionaries um, in this small country in the southern portion of Africa. It's called Malawi. So uh, this, is, this is what I do. right? Uh, this is my little trick here. Um, when you look at Malawi, there's a big lake, a big body of water that covers a fifth of that country. So water starts with what letter? You can, yeah, W. Okay, and so when you see the W in water, when you see it, you're supposed to take that W and turn it upside down to get an M for Malawi, and that's to remind you to pray for us. So when you're washing your hands, when you're taking a shower, when you're drinking some water, think Malawi, pray for us. You can do this? Yeah? All right. Go ahead and click to the next one. Um, We have a seminary that I started um, in, in, it's called Central African Preaching Academy, or CAPA. Uh, We offer a few programs there. We have a bachelor's degree Uh, that we added this year, a diploma and a master's degree. This is our first bachelor's class to graduate, 13 men. Um, I told some stories about that at the in-between hour. Um, We need to get to the word, so that's all I'm going to say for now. But if you miss that hour, you still have another chance, because uh, after, as has been said, we're going to do some potluck thing after this. So stick around, have some lunch with us. We can catch you up on what you missed i um, love to catch up with you as well. I, can, I should add this, though. Um, my wife and everybody, you're, you're all very faithful to, to pray for us and her health, and that's always a question on everyone's mind. Uh, her health is stable, is what the doctors are saying. Um, she has a long history with cancer, um, had a recurrence three years ago, and in the last three years, uh, it's been stable. All the scans just keep showing the same thing, no movement, no growth. So that's good. So thank you for your prayers, um, and we can catch up with you and tell you more about the ministry after this hour, okay? Thank you. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll open the Word of God. Lord, we, uh, we, we stop and quiet our hearts before you. We thank you for the opportunity to wake this morning. We did not deserve that. We deserve an eternity in hell, but you have been so gracious to us and not dealt with us according to our sin, not rewarded us according to our iniquity, but you lavish grace upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to hear from your word. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, apparently, a Disneyland has been using a secret shade of paint. Right, this color is described as a gray-green with a, a hint of blue. It's named Go Away Green. All right, you, you paint this on less-than-desirable items, items that take away from the park experience, things like trash cans, fences, backstage areas. Disney expert Gavin Doyle explains, the goal of this color is to cause the object to fade into your color spectrum so that your eye will miss it completely. In this way, the illusion of the park is better captured. Now, this should surprise no one, right? Everything about Disneyland is artificial. It's designed to give you the perfect experience. When it comes to amusement parks, blending in is good. But well, when it comes to our witness in the world, we should not want to blend in. Christians should want to stand out. And that's what our text is about this morning. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 2. This is a familiar portion of scripture. In Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18, we see two necessary requirements for having a powerful testimony in a wicked world. You are taking notes this morning. That is my outline. I think there's an insert in your bulletin that you can follow along with. Two necessary requirements for having a powerful testimony in a wicked world. As Christians, we should want to have an impactful testimony in this world. And Philippians 2 gives us two things that we need to do in order to have that. So let's jump right in and look at the first one. Stop complaining. We see this in verses 14 to 16. Stop complaining. Philippians 2 verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now the word "grumbling" here it means murmuring, complaining, griping, moaning, making a fuss. It's an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is, right? It's it's where the sound the word sounds like what it's supposed to mean. Words like clap, click. This word is gonguzma. It, it just sounds unhappy, right? Gonguzma. This is, this is having a negative response and expressing it. We can often do this without even using words. We can do this by the sounds that we make or our tone of voice when we're talking. This is when a mother tells the children to pick up the toys. Okay. We can comply outwardly and still be grumbling or murmuring in our hearts. This Next word here, disputing. Sometimes it's translated questioning in some versions of the ESV. It means arguing, creating friction, dissension, strife, clashing. Inside this word, we have another word from which we get the English logic. This is having some sort of reasoned argument. It may not be a very good one, but there's some sort of reasoned argument as to why I am in the right and others are in the wrong or it's not fair or something like that. This is your inner lawyer. (sighs) That is not fair. I can't believe that that is going on. That is not just and right because I'm inconvenienced. Something like that. And Christians... We are to do all things without, there should be total exclusion, complete absence of grumbling or disputing. This is a command. It is not optional. If we are grumbling or disputing, we are in sin. Notice it doesn't say to do some things or do most things, but all things without grumbling or disputing. This includes minor inconveniences like being stuck in traffic, as well as major things like putting up with the frustrations of government. Everything that we do, big or small, it all should be done without grumbling or disputing. If that's not enough, these words are in the emphatic position. See, Greek moves words forward for emphasis. And these words are first in the sentence. Literally, it says, All things do without grumbling or disputing. Now, look at the context in which this is found. Right, if you back up to verse 12, right, it talks about working out your salvation. And so learning to not grumble as we do things, that's part of working out your salvation. But back all the way up here to the beginning of chapter two, there's a series of commands that are given. Let's start, let's let's start verse three. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the mindset that we are to have as Christians. We are to look to do these things without grumbling or disputing. And then it it goes on here, and it provides an example in Jesus, verse 5. Have this mind, which we just talked about, have that mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. By the way, he did that without grumbling or disputing. Taking the form of a servant without grumbling or disputing. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself without grumbling or disputing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, without grumbling or disputing. First Peter 2 says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All things means all things. But contextually, most immediately in Paul's thinking, he is referring to humble, lowly, others-oriented service. This is what we should be striving to do as Christians, and we should do this without grumbling or disputing. Now, for most of us, complaining has become second nature. It's like breathing. When was the last time that you thought about breathing? We don't think about breathing. It's automatic. It's the same thing with grumbling. We don't think about it. It just comes out of our mouth. And we've even learned to dress it up with nicer words. Oh, I was just venting. Oh, oh, oh I, look, I'm just being honest with you. Hey, I, I got to get something off my chest here. It's, it's, it's like an appendix. It's always hanging around and we don't even know it's there. We need to do surgery and dig out the appendix of grumbling in our lives. Grumbling was the the sin of Israel in the wilderness, right? They complained because they didn't have food, and God sends them manna. Then they complain because they don't like the manna. They're in the land of Egypt, and they're grumbling about their bondage, and so God delivers them supernaturally. And then they grumble about being outside of the land. They're like flies on a screen door, the ones that are in one out, the ones that are out one in. They are discontent, with their circumstances, no matter where they are, no matter what they have. And therefore, God kills the entire generation. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that they are to be an example to us, the church, of what not to be like. That's how serious God hates grumbling. See, grumbling is contagious. It goes viral. And if you're in a conversation and someone starts moaning about something, and before you know it, the whole conversation is pulled in to the quicksand. You ever notice that there is one type of sin that skips the normal four-step process of church discipline? Right? Matthew 18, you know this. If someone is in sin, you go and you confront them. Step one, if they repent, you've won your brother and you're good. But if they don't, you keep pursuing more steps to try and win them. Step two is you bring a witness. Step three is you bring it before the church. If they still don't listen, then you put them out of the church. And when you're working through the process of church discipline with people, you are patient. It takes time. Before you go from step one to step two, before you go through the whole process, it takes months. It can take years. But, Titus 3, verse 10, Paul says, a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So why is that? Why are you more patient with adultery than you are with someone who stirs up division? It's because... Division spreads, and if you don't deal with it quickly, it overtakes your entire church. See, grumbling is like an Ebola outbreak, right? If there's a village that has Ebola, you don't just stand back, "Ah, they'll figure it out, right? We'll just let them, Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll know what to do, maybe they won't, let's just watch them for a while. no. You take radical steps. You deal with that, right? You bring in the hazmat suits, the military escort. You quarantine that place. You shut it down. You take radical steps, whatever you need to do to eliminate the Ebola. Are you taking radical steps to eliminate the grumbling from your life? Or have you learned to coexist with it? I just minimize it. I just get it to the point where, you know what? As long as I can grumble and do it not enough, I don't want people to think of me bad. I don't want it to get too scandalous and out of control. As long as I can just contain it a little bit, you know, it's okay. It can stay there. Now, What exactly is complaining? I think this is important to kind of stop here and ask this question. If we want to rid our lives of complaining, what is it? How does it differ from stating a fact, right? Can I simply state something without grumbling about it? I think if you turn over to chapter 4, Philippians here, I think this is helpful. Philippians 4, verse 6. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The things that make us anxious are things that don't go the way we want them to. They're problems. And when we have negative circumstances like that in our life, we are told to bring them to God in prayer. We are commanded to to do it. We see this in the Psalms all the time. The psalmist is writing, they're going through some situation that's negative and they're almost on the brink of despairing, right? They don't know what to do and so they bring it to the Lord because he's the only one who can do something about it. And so I think the difference here is heart attitude. What's sinful is the grumbling, having this negative response and the, the arguing, this inner lawyer that's fighting against things, but not all communicating about being dissatisfied or disappointed is necessarily grumbling and disputing. Right? If, if a, a parent, if I ask my child to do the dishes, I, I can have two very different responses. One, i could say oh, oh, I always have to do the dishes. This is not fair. Can't my brother do the dishes? Right? Or you could say, yes, Dad. But if, if I may, I believe that I did the dishes last night. And, and when I did them, I thought you said that it would be my brother's turn to do them tonight. Right? Two very different responses based on two very different attitudes, Now, the the problem is, it's a slippery slope, right? It is very easy to start talking about a situation in a non-grumbling way, but very quickly to deteriorate into complaining or self-centeredness or self-pity, right? You can start by sharing a prayer request, and it can easily move into grumbling against the sovereignty of God in our lives, Our hearts are sinful. We are prone to sin, and murmuring is second nature. Jeremiah 17 tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things, and so we can think that we are stating facts when we are really grumbling in our hearts without even realizing it. And so, to help us out this morning, I have come up with what I'm calling the o Rats, test, all right? Oh, rats is a a phrase that you may be tempted to utter when you are in a difficult situation. Oh, rats, maybe not, but maybe. Anyway, it's the one I've chosen because all the letters work. It's an acrostic, right? Every letter stands for something, O-H-R-A-T-S, okay? Six of them. Oh, rats, you want yes answers, no answers are not good. It probably means you're grumbling, okay? So let's, let's work through this. Next time you catch yourself grumbling, check yourself, oh rats. Okay, I got a lot of verses here. Jot them down, come back to them later. Oh, oh is for outlook. Do I have an eternal outlook? Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? And, and so God has a purpose in our lives and the things that he is doing. He is working to make us more like his son. He is in control and he's working that good in our lives. Do you trust that? 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 1 Corinthians 10:31 is like that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God. Are you aiming to please the Lord? Are you aiming to glorify him in your circumstances, in your situation? If not, you're probably complaining. H. H is for heart. Is my heart right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Are you praying about the situation as much as you should? Is that your first instinct to go to the Lord in prayer? The next verse says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Are you giving thanks for your circumstances and maybe the trials that he's bringing you? Are you? R is for reasoning. Is my reasoning, is my thinking fair? You see, it's very easy when we're in a situation that we don't like to not stop and realize that there's another side that might have a very good argument. Proverbs 18 13. If one man gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. Have you listened to the other side? Proverbs 26, 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Are you being charcoal to the situation or water? Right? So often we extend arguments. Don't even need to be there. You're arguing about nothing. Silly little things, and we just keep them going without even realizing it. A, he's agreeable. Am I agreeable? Am I pleasant? Am I responding in a godly way if I'm not getting what I want? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what this is. It's some disease or some person or something that's making life difficult for Paul. And he wants it gone. And he prays to the Lord and he asks him to remove it Nothing. So he prays again and again, three times. And the Lord answers him and he says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So how does Paul respond when he doesn't get what he wants? Does he grumble? No. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, and calamities. Is that how you respond? We don't have an audible voice from the Lord telling us things these days, but we know that every non-yes answer in prayer is from the Lord. And if he leaves some trial in your life because he is trying to make you more like Christ, are you content with that? Will you boast in your weakness? Or will you gripe about it? Life is so hard, this isn't fair, and then post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever people in America do these days. <laughs> T. Treating people. Am I treating people right? Romans 13, verse 2 says, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Verse 7. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. He talks about taxes, and then he says, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Paul is talking about the Roman authorities that are persecuting Christians. He says, respect them. Not because they're good people, but because of their position. They are appointed by God. Do you treat your leaders like that? We have what has become the the golden rule, right? Jesus' words when he says, uh, what you wish others would do to you, do so to them. Is that how you treat people? Is that how you treat the waiter or the restaurant that doesn't give you your food the way you want it? S, solution. Is there a solution I can offer Thinking of Daniel here in chapter 1, who's in captivity with his friends. They're in exile. And they're chosen as kind of a special group, an elite group, to be a part of the king's table, to eat like the king. They're kind of going to be the, the examples for everyone else. And Daniel and his friends say, we can't eat from the king's table. We cannot defile ourselves in this way. And he doesn't just go to the guard and say, I can't eat your food Right? This is bad stuff. No. He offers a solution. He says, hey, what if we eat only bread and water for 10 days? And if we're just like everyone else, is that good enough? Can we stay that way? And he works something out because he's looking for a solution, not just griping. There you have it. Oh, rats. Hopefully that's helpful to you as you evaluate your circumstances and your responses to them. Back to chapter 2, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That, here is a purpose, the purpose of this is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights or stars in the world. Now, stars are always there, but you don't see them in the daytime because there's no contrast. It's too bright. But when there's a dark sky, that's when you see the stars. It's, it's like shopping for a diamond. Right? Men who propose, you understand this, right? When you go and you look for the rock, they don't just bring out a diamond and show it to you. They put it, on a piece of black velvet. So there's a contrast. So that diamond sparkles and stands out. And that's the way it's supposed to be with us, right? The shining of stars is the blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's the diamond. And the contrast here is the crooked and twisted generation. That's the velvet background. See, the world grumbles, and disputes. Right? If you think about advertising, the whole point of advertising is to get you to be discontent with where you are so that you will buy their stuff. Right? The world grumbles and complains and doesn't like things and we are not to go along with that. We are not to be painted with go-away green. Right? We are not to blend in. We are not to participate in the chorus of complaining around us but to be a sound of dissonance. How do we do that? How do we shine? Not grumbling and disputing. Now, what happens when we fail? Because sooner or later, something's going to slip out and we're going to grumble or dispute. And so I think when this happens, when we catch ourselves muttering and saying something that we shouldn't, we stop and we ask for forgiveness from the Lord and from those around us who have hurt us. See, because this also shines, this also contrasts with the world. This is not the way the world is. And then we get right back to working out our salvation in front of them. And I think this is, it's very interesting here that the text doesn't say that we shine like stars if we follow the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say that we shine like stars if we avoid sexual sin or cheating on our taxes or not getting drunk, right? I mean, those are things that we try and do as Christians, right? Those are things that contrast With the world. So, why doesn't Paul talk about stuff like that? Why is complaining or not complaining the essence of shining like stars? The answer, I believe, is found in James chapter 3. Turn over there with me. James 3. It's another familiar portion of Scripture. This is the warning uh, that we shouldn't become teachers. Because teachers receive a stricter judgment. They use their tongue in what they do. James chapter three, verse two. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. In other words, the tongue is the hardest member of our body to get under control. And I think what this implies is that grumbling and disputing as we pursue sanctification, those are the last things to go. if all I'm trying to do is avoid sexual sin, all I'm trying to do is avoid getting drunk and cheating on my taxes, then my standard is not high enough. I need to strive to not just do those things, but also to not grumble and dispute, to not complain. And as I rid my life of those things, then I will be blameless and innocent. We will be children of God without blemish. And we will shine as stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. How do we do this? All right, if you go back to Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 16. It says, by holding fast to the word of life. Now, this phrase, word of life here, it often refers to the gospel. That's how Paul has used it in the previous chapter, and I think that's what makes most sense in this context. Paul is saying that the key to not complaining and being able to shine like stars is to cling to the gospel. How does this work? Right? What do we deserve? Because of our sin, what do we deserve? We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve an eternity for hell. Eternity in hell for our sin, right? Is that what we get as Christians? No, right? Jesus has lived a perfect life. And he has died on a cross in our place. And God has taken the wrath that was meant for us and he put it on Christ. And that Christ's perfect life has been given to us by believing or trusting in him. That's the gospel, right? Everything that we have is not what we deserve. Everything that we have is the grace of God. And so if we are lacking in one thing, if we don't have every single thing that we want, what do we have to complain about? Jesus has purchased our salvation with his life. How then can we turn around and complain about the weather? Oh, it's too hot today. Grumbling is a slap in the face of God. When we flew up here, we came from Southern California, we flew up uh, to Northern California. We were on a flight that had open seating. There were six rows across, my family was five. And so we had a middle seat between myself and my son that was open. And it was literally, I believe, the second to last person who got on the plane. He passes up several middle seats And instead of continuing to the back of the plane where there are open aisle seats, there are open window seats where he could spread out to his heart's content, he plops down right in the middle between me and my son. And then he proceeds to spread out, right? He pulls out some notes and things he's working on. He flops over the armrest. He's in my lap and all this. And I'm thinking, what on earth? Why didn't you just go to the back where there was a ton of space for you to do this? When we moan in situations like that, we are saying that Christ's death is not enough. I need something more to be satisfied. I need the seat next to me to be empty on a one-hour flight. I mean, in any other context, we would say, what a spoiled brat. Are you being a spoiled brat? Are you ignoring the cornucopia of good gifts that God has given you and making a fuss about nothing? In view of our sin and the wrath that we deserve and we have not received it, we never have a legitimate reason to complain. People ask, how are you? And sometimes somebody says, oh, better than I deserve. That is the right perspective. That is the right mindset. If you have that thinking, you will not grumble. The amount of complaining that we do is a, a spiritual thermometer, right? It, it, it's a, th- a thermometer reading. It shows you how you're doing spiritually in your walk with the Lord. If you are less mature, you will look at your problems and you will gripe. But the longer we walk with the Lord, the closer we draw to Him, the more we will look to the gospel and you won't complain. If I were to take the gripometer reading in your life, what would it say about your walk with the Lord? What if I were to ask your spouse or your parents or somebody who knows you well? Verse 16, continuing on. It says, so that, here is another purpose of all that has come before. The purpose of this is that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The day of Christ is a reference to the coming judgment before the Lord. 1 Corinthians uh, thir- first corinthians 3 talks about this right where there will be a judgment where all of our works will be revealed our works as christians right this is not a judgment about salvation christians our works will be made known and things that are eternal will not burn up it will be rewarded for them but things that are worthless will burn up and we will have a loss of rewards we'll have missed opportunities because of that and paul is saying look if I bring you the gospel and I invest in you and then that day of judgment comes and you go back to your belly aching ways and all of that is revealed, then all of my efforts are in vain and I don't want that. Now, he is not implying here that you can lose your salvation. Turn back uh, to chapter one here. You look back at verse... Verse six, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so if God has started a work in you of salvation, it will be completed all the way at the day of Christ on that day of judgment. It doesn't start something in you and then it doesn't happen. So when believers read warnings like this, We don't respond glibly. We don't say, ah, I am secure. I don't need to worry. No, we pay attention. We take heed. We are careful not to grumble. And that's why that work comes to completion. And Paul is saying, that's what I want for you. I want you to persevere. I want you to rid your life of grumbling. And so that on that day of judgment, I will be proud of you. Not proud of me, proud of you. Right? This is when your, your kid does a little sporting event or a recital or something. You go, oh, I'm so proud of you, right? That's what he's saying. I want to be proud of you. I want to be excited for you on that day. If it was judgment day and all of your balking was revealed, Would your pastor or church leader be proud of you? See, love for our church leaders, love for whoever has invested in us, that is motivation for us to pursue righteousness and stop grumbling. Stop complaining. It's the first necessary requirement for having a powerful testimony in a wicked world. Second, start rejoicing. This is in verses 17 to 18. Start rejoicing, and this will go quicker for those of you who are watching the time. Verse 17, turn back. Chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now Paul is developing a metaphor here. He is saying that the Philippians, faith, it's an offering, it's a sacrifice. And Paul's efforts to strengthen their faith compares that to a drink offering. Now, drink offering was secondary. It's a compliment to the main offering. The main offering is a, a hunk of meat. They put this piece of meat on the altar and they set it on fire. And the drink offering was a cup of wine. You'd take that wine and you would pour it onto the main offering. And when the alcohol hits the fire, whoosh, big flash of flame. Right? It was meant to draw attention to the main offering. It was meant so that the people in the back could see it. Wow, offering! Paul says, even if my role in your sanctification is simply a liquid explosion meant to draw attention to you, I rejoice. Even if I'm momentary, even if I'm a spotlight directing attention to you, I rejoice. Now this is Paul, the apostle. He could have said, look, I'm the main event. You're a decoration in my life. But that is not his mindset, right? He rejoices in the lowly, humble, other-oriented service that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 18. It says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul rejoiced with the Philippians, and they were to rejoice with him. See, like grumbling, the rejoicing is contagious. It's like putting your kid in the nursery. They get a germ and they give it to someone else. It's just the way joy works. Joy, part of the joy is sharing it with others. When you go to a sporting event, you look at the people, right? Half the fun is celebrating with others. Right? It's the high fives, it's the yelling and screaming, it's the jumping up and down and going crazy. When your team makes a great play, you don't sit on your hands and be silent. It's no fun. Right? The joy is sharing it with people who will share it back with you. This is a command. We are to rejoice like this. It is not optional. It is sin if we are not doing this. Let me draw your attention to the word at the beginning of this verse. You look at the beginning of verse 18, it begins with this word, likewise. Literally, in the same way, there is a reciprocation. Not just in the rejoicing, but rejoicing like Paul rejoiced. Rejoicing in the kind of service that Paul rejoiced in. Rejoicing in the lowly, humble, others-oriented, drink-offering kind of service. The passage begins with a command to not grumble in those things, and it ends with a command to rejoice in those things. That is not an accident. These are two sides of the same coin. Stop grumbling, start rejoicing. Put off the grumbling, put on the rejoicing. This is the main lesson of the book of Philippians. We cannot control our circumstances, that does not bring us happiness. But happiness comes from how we look at those circumstances. I, I can't control my situation. But I can control my perspective on the situation. And that then leads to grumbling or rejoicing. Paul is a great example of this. He is in prison. He is in a small, dark cave in the ground. He is in chains awaiting trial. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. When you get rid of the words like and and the, the most frequent words in this book our rejoice and joy. The happiest man in Rome is in prison. And if you look back, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's referring to his imprisonment. All right? He's been thrown in jail and he writes a letter. If we were to do that, our letter would not look like his, right? Our letter would be, get me a lawyer, get me out of here. This is not right. But he says, what has happened to me? And then he gives you two reasons to rejoice. First, he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Number two, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Right? He doesn't complain, he doesn't say, I'm unjustly prisoned. He says, The gospel is being advanced such that everyone in the palace now knows about it because I'm here. And two, people are bold to do the same and preach. That's perspective. That's a different perspective than we tend to have. Cuz I have the opportunity to serve the Lord even though it's a lowly, humble drink offering sort of way. It has eternal value. It won't burn up. And because of that, I rejoice Put another way, as he would say later in this letter, in chapter 4, I have learned to be content in any and every situation. This is the challenge of the New Testament. To be deeply and joyfully content in our circumstances. Matthew 5 Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Ephesians 5, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Children of God are not complainers. We don't grumble, we rejoice. We don't gripe, we praise God. We don't get bitter, we get grateful. When? When? in all things. How are you doing with this? Turn with me to the book of Jonah as we wrap up our time. So we've looked at Paul... And we have seen how he didn't grumble, but he rejoiced. He was content in his circumstances. And Jonah stands in stark contrast to this. Right? He was called to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Jonah hated the Ninevites. And so what did he do? He did not go to the Ninevites, but he goes the opposite direction. He tries to run. And it doesn't work out. The Lord uses a big fish to bring him back. And he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites, and they're saved. But the story doesn't end there. At the end of the book, in chapter four, we see Jonah's response. It says in four verse one, "But it, the fact that the Ninevites were saved. it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, this is the content of his prayer. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful. God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This guy has just been a part of the greatest revival around. And he's angry about it. He complains and wants to die. And so the Lord tries to teach him a lesson, gives him an object lesson. He grows up this plant overnight to provide shade for him from the sun. And a worm eats the plant and it dies. 24 hour period. There's no more shade. And Jonah, he still doesn't get it. Again, he is angry. He gripes against God. And at the end of verse 8, he says, It is better for me to die than to live. This, this is utter silliness. Right? The Guy's beach umbrella, he loses it. And he wants to die. He's so upset. In light of our sin and the wrath that we deserve, when we complain, we do the exact same thing. How are you doing with your circumstances? Are you a Paul or a Jonah? Lord, we desire to stand out. We desire to shine as lights and not blend in. But it's so easy to fall into grumbling and disputing. It is our nature. We pray that you would set a guard over our mouths, that you would watch our lips, that you would rid our lives of the joy-sapping habit of complaining. Help us to have an eternal perspective on life and the things that happen to us. Help us to be murmur-free rejoicers. We pray all this in your name. Amen.